WGN Radio. I'm Holly James, and I've got an arithmetic word problem for you. Everybody's favorite. One in five students have a mental health issue that keeps them from learning. There is one school psychologist for every 1,400 students in the public schools. What could possibly go wrong here? Well, you're going to find out from Rebecca Brandstetter. Dr. Brandstetter has written a number of books, including The Conscious Parent's Guide to Executive Functioning Disorder, which just in the title alone I'm convinced I have, but one of the many things during the pandemic that parents are dealing with. And we'll also talk about the numerous things that school psychologists are dealing with. So, Rebecca, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. And yes, those numbers do not add up, do they? <laughs> well, I guess we should start with, because those of us really long of tooth, we never had a school psychologist. So uh, tell me about this. What precisely does a school psychologist do day to day? All right. So a school psychologist um, is in public schools, and believe it or not, schools have a school psychologist assigned to them, but Some schools or parents might not know about it because um, often school psychologists have several schools in between. So a school psychologist is essentially someone who has expertise in figuring out how kids, what is getting in the way, and what do we do about it. So traditionally, schools assess students for, let's say, maybe special education services, and help kind of do a learning plan and put their heads together with parents and teachers and kiddos to figure out how kids can best access their learning and meet all of their learning and emotional needs. And now and more than ever, and particularly even before the pandemic, school psychologists help on some level. Even broader than helping like an individual who's having a challenge, look at school-wide issues. If all of our kids are struggling with something, we put our heads together on problem-solving teams to solve that, whether that be reading, writing, math, um, bullying, suicide prevention, or right now distance learning challenge. Name it. School psychologists look at the whole system. How can we help reach and teach kids before they have a mental health crisis? Now, when did this concept really emerge full-blown in public schools across the country? Because like I say, in the, in the 50s and the early 60s, they didn't have this. They, they didn't have a nurse. They had a, P, a PTA mother who was called the nurse who would call your parents and send you home. So when did this about, change? Yeah, about 1970. It's a newer profession, and it kind of came about the, um, you know, special education and disability advocacy laws that we needed to be able to reach and teach kids no matter what kind of learning challenges they came. So school psychologists came on initially around 70 or so. Um, newer profession, um, but its its origins were helping kids with disabilities, and we still do that to a great extent. It's one of our major roles, but actually broadened out over the past however many years um, into productivity as well. Yeah, yeah. I, I would think that makes a lot of sense because obviously the, the, the hardcore special needs kids are fairly easily identifiable, but it's the kids who have more mild or just uh, subtle disorders who very often fall between the cracks. But I got to say, at this point in time, I would think that the school psychologist probably has their hands full helping the teachers because the one thing I have seen mm-hmm. on and on online is teachers who are literally at 
wit's end because they do not feel the way online education is being set up through the public schools is being effective. You hear things about, they're saying, I got 28 kids, 27 of them are failing. Uh, They're expected to be in front of the computer for hours after hours, and it's just unrealistic. And on and on the list goes, and you can hear the emotion in these individuals who are venting. And I would think that there is as big, if not bigger, a problem among educators than there is among students right now. There's plenty of challenges to go around, but let me put it this way. When teachers aren't thriving, kids aren't thriving. When parents aren't thriving, kids aren't thriving. It really is one of those things that adults around kids, when they are coping well with stress, they are able to handle situations, then kids do well. And look, we're in a very, um, you know, kind of developmentally inappropriate kind of service delivery. I have a six-year-old. And, you know, six-year-olds aren't cut out to be on Zoom all day long, right? Mm-hmm. They're hands-on learners. They benefit from social interaction and from, you know, all kids do, but particularly the little ones and particular kids with learning disabilities. Really challenging. So, of course, teachers are really stressed and parents are stressed and kids are stressed. And what we know neurologically is that stressed-out brains can't learn. They can't problem-solve. When you're in fight, flight, or freeze, you don't have access to all those great frontal lobe skills of thinking and reasoning and, you know, working through math problems and all of those things that we can call in that executive functioning domain, which executive functioning is just fancy schmancy for all the stuff it takes to, right, planning, organizing, and following through on things and avoiding distractions and keeping attention and starting and sticking with and finishing tasks. But none of that is possible when you're in brainstem when you're in fight, flight, or freeze mode. And a lot of our teachers, parents, and kids are in that mode right now. Oh, exactly. And what you said about a six-year-old shouldn't be in front of uh, a Zoom online lecture for hours on end. Uh, This is so blatantly obvious to anyone studying psychology. So since so many schools are doing this now, I got to ask, were the school psychologists consulted when the school districts came up with some of these uh, brain trust plans? I know I personally was not. Yeah. <laughs> um, yes, I mean, I think that, um, you know, a lot of them done quickly, and it was also kind of building the plane as you were flying it, right? Mm-hmm. When it came on the scene in March, it was like, one day we're all in school, and now we are doing distance learning. So in the spring, it certainly was just survival mode, like how can we hit? I think over the summer, a lot of planning and organization went into kind of retooling um, and with, within the parameters we have, which is limited in a lot of cases, just logistically, you know, there were some pretty, you know, innovative things that were moving along. And also there were some adjustments made. So, you know, it, the balance tipped, you know, from not a lot of direct teacher instruction. They call it um, synchronous learning, which is like we're all at the same time on Zoom. It was a lot of um, asynchronous learning at the beginning of the pandemic, which was, I put a lesson on Zoom or on YouTube and you watch it and do it on your own with your parents, right? And then it developed a lot of synchronous learning. And some schools got innovated and did a little hybrid of synchronous and asynchronous. And, you know, some schools are doing um, where the students with special needs are the women in very small groups. So I think there are some innovative things. It's sort of doing the best you can with the situation. And I think a lot of teachers... Look, we hear about all of the challenges, but I'm here to tell you there's some teacher heroes out there who are crushing 
learning. And my daughter's fourth grade teacher is one of them. Like, she is engaged. Um, she's completing her work, right? Like, this teacher is incredible at, you know, engaging kids on Zoom. So I think that it really is a variable experience. And the variable involved are, you know, the teacher's fluency and fluidity with, like, adapting to technology, um, the student's ability to focus, um, you know, how much experience and what's their skill set like. Do they have a stable Internet connection? There's so many variables. So I think right now um, we need to, you know, I'm not saying to relax our academic standards and have less rigor. We kind of relax our standards to a level appropriate for a global pandemic, which means we are not going to be able to get through as much curriculum. And honestly, the research on trauma and I would say this is a collective trauma for kids, right, being displaced from their schools for so long. Um, the research on trauma, in fact, uh, and we can use Katrina as a sort of recent example in our brains. When students returned to school after Katrina, when folks focused on achievement, filling the gaps, back to reading right away, kids did not fare as well as schools that focused on social-emotional, right, making sure the kids and that speaks to neuroscience. We need to make sure our kids are okay emotionally before they can learn a thing. And I think that's what's so, so hard right now for teachers is how do you connect with and make sure the kids are doing okay. And that's where school psychologists come in. And so there's been a lot of amazing, innovative things that school psychologists have done. And if I could just brag about my people for a moment. <laughs> um, so I have an online course of community called the Thriving School Psychologist Collective which is where we all get together. And we've been Zooming before it was cool, okay? Like, we've been getting together and problem-solving the systematic challenges of, you know, being overworked and really underutilized in our schools because we don't have enough time. Um, and when the beginning of the pandemic came, we got together and we're like, okay, what can we do for the social-emotional needs right now on virtually? And the innovation that came out of it was amazing. There was a YouTube channel with social-emotional learning lessons, like how do you cope with things? What do you do with frustration? When, when you're feeling anxious, what do you do? And that was delivered. Um, and we got together with teachers and had problem-solving groups about and had parent support groups and really focused on the adults being able to support the kids' social-emotional. So if there's any sort of lesson that we need to keep learning right now during distance learning is focus on social emotional because kids can't learn when they're stressed or disconnected anyway. Absolutely. Dr. Rebecca Brandstetter, PhD on Raleigh.net. I've got links to all of Rebecca's books. You can also go to thrivingschoolpsych.com. You might have some questions and we'll entertain them. 888-876-5593-8888 Raleigh. And of course, I've got a few of my own coming up on WGN Radio. And we're talking with Dr. Rebecca Brandstetter. And I've got links at Raleigh.net to the books, and there are several of them. And you can also go to thrivingschoolpsych.com. And I was wondering, as you were saying, Rebecca, uh, initially it was uh, no interaction. You just went and got your lessons, and now it's so much interaction, and some of the teachers are complaining no kid can sit this long in front of Zoom. What power does the individual's teacher have to adjust this rather than an edict from the school board or the principal if if a teacher sees my kids are failing because there's not enough interaction or because there's too much interaction what can they do about it yeah i mean i think that there's 
a number of things. The first is that this is not just a teacher problem. This is a, a problem for principals and school psychologists and parents. And I think that when we give feedback to administrators and sort of higher ups about what's working and what isn't, many of them are receptive. And I know just from, you know, working in schools and working with school psychologists across the country, that school psychologists are sort of the linchpins in, you know, getting all parties together in the room and seeing multiple perspectives. So, you know, if there's a school leadership team, school psychs are on it. And, and that's because we can see some of that, you know, um, helicopter above kind of viewpoint of a school. Um, I know that at least, you know, in, in schools that I've worked in and been consulting with, teachers have been able to, you know, be a part of the conversation if things aren't working. And I know even just on an individual level, if things aren't working and, you know, your parents out there listening and it's just not working for your kid and it, you... I invite you to collaborate with your teacher and there are modifications and supports and, you know, strategies that can be put into place. And I'll just give a real world example for this. So one of the things that teachers have to contend with is this concept called differentiation, which is reaching kid at the level that they are ready to be taught at, right? So if they are in third grade and they're reading at third grade level, then great, we're giving third grade curriculum. But if they're a little bit behind, maybe they're just behind or not accessing, or maybe they're advanced. If we're delivering everything to the middle, then some kids who are on the lower end are going to struggle and kids who are on the higher end are going to struggle. And so you can differentiate. So one of the things that teachers do is they have some things built in right now where they can have it almost seems like free periods, which, you know, in this asynchronous time, then I've seen teachers jump into Zoom breakouts with different levels of kids and, and check in with kids. And so there are some things that are already set up. But if you're a parent and you're like, it's not working for my kid, I'm here to tell you job number one is to contact your, your student's teacher because they may not even know behind the scenes, right? Maybe all they're seeing is a blank Zoom screen because like, your kid has logged off emotionally or actually. And what they're not seeing is that your child is crying or having a fit or, you know, um, withdrawing or whatever they're doing. Okay, I'm going to... And I'm gonna they le- might just think, well, they're not motivated. I'm right? going to leave it leave it right and, there. i got to leave it right there. And we will pick it up in moments on WGN Radio. We are talking with Dr. Rebecca Brandstetter. And the problem with cell phones is they're half duplex, which means that when I talk and uh, Rebecca can't interrupt and vice versa because you only hear part of the conversation so not meaning to cut you off for that but uh, time marches on and time actually Rebecca I'm sure as a school psychologist you know this better than most of us uh, kids to time is an eternity you know I used to say the third grade took seven years you know to a senior citizen a year takes two weeks so when a kid is immersed in an unworkable situation and we're saying well you'll go to the administrators and they'll have a meeting and all this you know weeks can go by if not months and this is forever to a child so let's say a parent ascertains there's a problem my kid is not thriving, and it's worse than that. Uh, talking about bringing it up to uh, to the teacher, and then they'll have a meeting and all that. Uh, I don't know about you, but my kid would be out of that school so fast your head would swim. So when problems like this arise, how quickly do they resolve? Well, I can tell you, just even from personal experience, that my little one was struggling with distance learning, and within a week um, we had a meeting, and 
the teacher put some modifications in place where she met just for a couple minutes after school to do the check-in, how'd it go, and in her, she behavior completely changed within a week. And here's why. Because in stressful times, connection is, meaning learning isn't like a place. It's a relationship. So the degree that you can build your child's a teacher, the more engaged they're going to be. The thing is, uh, like if you, yeah, if you're crushing of schedules and is it going to be synchronous or asynchronous, I mean, that's going to be sort of a long-term solution. In the short term, if I can invite parents to think about one thing, it's about connection with your child. And so when in doubt, um, choose empathy. That is like if you feel like you've tried everything to get your child back on track with distance learning, there's no success in your, you know, the chances are your kid's probably not in the right headspace for problem solving because they're stressed, right? The fight or flight, like I mentioned before, they're neurologically not available. I mean, really, time you were stressed, were you like at your peak cognitive performance to solve and dig into tasks that require deep focus? No, probably not. So, the fastest way for parents to get their kids to work with them on whatever challenges they're having is hold off on problem solving and start with empathy. So when you lean in in those parenting moments where they're um, withdrawing or acting out, if you honestly just lean in with like, it makes sense that you feel so stressed or it makes sense you feel this way, or I get why this is so hard for you. Wow, it's tough to be on Zoom so much. That actually neurologically brings your kid back to a baseline level of calm for them to problem solve and learn. So I think when in doubt, try to focus on connection and empathy with your child. You think you'd be really surprised at how quickly you can get your child's brain back online when you lean in with empathy first. And then, yes, work on the long-term solutions with the teachers and the administrators. At what point are the warning flags such that it's time to look at, say, different education options? In other words, you've tried and you're seeing your child doing very poorly. At what point do you say, I'm not subjecting him or her to this anymore? You know, I'm a big fan of parental intuition. I think parents often know when their child is in an environmental mismatch. When they know it's not working, things have been attempted and it's still not working and the writings on the parents have a good gut sense on that. I think you also about kids don't always express themselves verbally and proficiently, right? Kids express through their behavior. Behavior is communication. If they're acting out, if they're withdrawing, those are behavioral clues that they are having an unmet need. If they're not sleeping and they're not eating or their behavior is like completely out of character for how they were pre-pandemic, then you might want to consider other options. And I know a lot of families you know, have opted for homeschooling, um, which is, yes, distance learning, but also with a little bit more control over the situation and how the you know, instruction is delivered and in what way and how experiential it is versus sitting in front of a computer. So my advice is to listen to your gut. And if your kid's older, you know, how about them? Like, think about, is this something that we can make work together? Or should we look at other options and engage your child in that discussion? Because, you know, we don't want to have our kids for however long this pandemic is going to drag on just be suffering so much, right? 
So I think that it's a combination okay. of trying what you can, but also trusting that when you've exhausted your resources, and parents often know that. Now, what's interesting, of course, is initially we were sold that this was going to be a two-week period where there would be a lockdown, things like that. Now we see we're in a protracted period. We don't know where that's going. And, of course, open-ended questions like that, not not able to intuit the future, uh, create their own levels of stress. Uh, on, on, top, on top of that, as we, we look further, we can almost see that there are going to be more economic implications to what we're dealing with now. Uh, we possibly... Possibly we'll see that there's going to be more rioting, looting, etc. You know, all the things that are uh, talked about that might come to pass. So let's assume that 2021 things are getting worse, not better. Now, do the schools have a plan for that? How are they planning to combat it if it doesn't come back to even, quote unquote, the new normal, but in fact goes the other way? You know, I think there's a lot of unknowns, as you know, and what you mentioned is spot on, is that when we're living in uncertainty, we we get anxious. And what I, and this is a tough one, but what I've been inviting folks to do is to, you know, the opposite of uncertainty isn't certainty. It's actually presence. It's being present in this present moment and saying, what is the reality right now? How can I make the best of what is going on right now? How can I do a control audit? right? What's in my control and what isn't? And if we spend a lot of time as humans focusing on what is out of our control, wishing it were otherwise, and that is an exercise in frustration. When we focus in on the present moment and control over, it gives us a sense of agency and it reduces our anxiety. So it's so, so hard to project into 2021 or March of 2021. Um, It's a lot of unknown. So I think that you know, right now, at least for me as a parent and as a school psychologist, I, I think that it's healthy to think about what is happening right now. What do I have control over? I have control over how I respond to my child when they acting out, when they act out. I have control over, um, you know, what kind of educational um, situation I want to have them in. If I want to pull them in homeschool, if I want to continue in the public school, if I want to look for some sort of private online learning experience. I think that we need to focus in on what we have control over. I agree. And, I agree with that um, wholeheartedly. But yeah. let me uh, let me ask it this way: Nonetheless, the schools clearly are in a position where they have to be thinking forward and planning for you know the the obvious eventualities, whether they come to pass or they don't, the likelihoods and. As we know, of course, in the in the spring, they got caught completely off guard. I'm sure that if there was a poll, no one would have thought we're doing this starting in September uh, open-ended. But here we are. So I guess my question is, you've been in some of these meetings, you've talked to some of these administrators. Are they looking at what if this is longer term, more protracted than we expect? And what if it's worse? You know, for instance, economically, you're talking about whether the kids have broadband. Well, some of them may be living in their cars before too long. We don't know where this is going. So you know, for, forewarned is sometimes half of the battle. Are the schools looking ahead about how to handle this if this gets worse? Yeah, I think they are. So one of the sort of, um, I guess, architecture of, you know, intervention and prevention of the schools is if you think about at the base level of the pyramid, what kids need, right? They need food. They need shelter. They need safety. They need belonging, right? And a lot of school districts, and I'm in the Bay Area, um, in Oakland School District, they're focusing 
not crying food, shelter, clothing. A lot of the schools are focusing on how can we make sure our kids get food, right? So they're focusing on that tier one, that bottom level of um, survival needs at the school level. They're not worrying about, you know, algebraic standards right now. They're making sure their kids are fed and safe. The second tier is things that a handful of kids need, groups of kids need. And that falls under things that maybe the basic needs are met and some of their learning needs are met, but they need a higher level of care. They need more specialized services. They need more support with learning. They need, you know, some other, you know, specialized small group um, counseling to get through tough times together. They need parent support, right? And then there's a top tier, which is crisis. Like, this kid's in crisis, this kid's suicidal, we need that, right? So I think that at these meetings that school psychologists attend, um, it's called multi-tier systems of support, or MTSS. And they're looking at all those tiers. What does every kid need? What does some kid need? And what does this kid need now? So I think they are looking systematically. I think one of the larger issues um, is that, you know, funding for education. Um, you know, it was for epidemic. <laughs> right? School psychologists were spread thin before the pandemic. And now it's really just amplified. So part of my mission as, as a thriving school psychologist is to is to get some more support for mental health and basic learning needs in, in the schools. And so we're working really hard to, like, push our legislators for, you know, education funding, health funding bills, and even just on, you know, local level, talking to our school board members saying, look, we need to get these base level supports for kids because, like you said, it could get much, much worse. And then really the, the gap between the kids who have and have not is going to widen. It's an equity issue as well. Yeah, I, uh, I agree with all that. And when you talk about raising money, of course, it's at a time when the tax base is probably going to be lower. Uh, sales tax, people are spending less and on and on. So it's, uh, it's dominoes. We're talking with Dr. Rebecca Brandstetter, PhD. You can go to thrivingschoolpsych.com and on raleigh.net. I've got links to all the books. And yes, I will not let Rebecca go before we find out more about executive functioning disorder. Uh, she, uh, she explains it very well in the book. Uh, the problem is, as I read that I thought, hell, that's all the adults I know. So apparently this doesn't uh, doesn't necessarily clear up with age. We'll pick it up on WGN Radio. We are talking with Dr. Rebecca Brandstetter, and I find this fascinating. We haven't even delved into this yet, but uh, when I read Executive Functioning Disorder, the first thing I thought, yes, it's geared to how to help a child with these issues, but you know, you start to look at time management skills, and it seems to me that most adults have all these issues. So the first thing I wondered is, how many parents have coped with this themselves and are even in a position to help? Right, so executive functioning, like I mentioned at the top of your show, is all the skills it takes to reach a goal. And that's planning and organizing, starting, sticking with, and finishing tasks. And What's so interesting about executive functioning is that it is something that is a lifelong skill, right? It's not something that develops and you're done. Um, and it's one of those things that has sort of a developmental timeline. So funnel lobe is actually not even fully formed and developed in the executive functioning area until you're about 20, 27. So there is definitely an adulthood period where it's like, I did not think that through. Like that is actually something that is, sort of developmentally on target. Um, and then as you get into adulthood, some of the things that impact executive functioning can be um, stress, 
And executive functioning is one of the things like, you know, if you went to your doctor and, and you said, you know, um, I have fatigue, what do I have? See, that's a nonspecific symptom. You can have a lot of things, right? Right. For executive functioning. If you have executive functioning challenges, you go to a doctor and say, I have an executive functioning problem. I can't stick with tasks or whatever. I have attention. There are many, many things that cause that. Some executive, there is no one executive functioning disorder, as I mentioned in my book. Yes. There are a number of conditions that cause executive function challenges. It can be learning issues. It can be ADHD. It can be stress and anxiety. It can be poor sleep. There are many, many conditions that cause it. So, yes, some adults have executive functioning uh, challenges. You know, not necessarily, you know, due to neurological impairment in their frontal lobe due to and, ADHD and things like that, but because of situations. Yeah, it's uh, it's interesting when you were talking about the Stanford Marshmallow study, for instance, and really that comes down to delayed versus immediate gratification. Uh, the thing I really zoomed in on was that usually that shows a level of a child's trust. If uh, if the child thinks that, uh, you know, I'm not going to get two marshmallows at the end of the study, then I'll just eat mine now or whatever it is, I've got to get it now because if I wait, it's going to go away. And very often that's a, that's a function of early childhood experience in the home. So you've got things on a number of But when a parent reads this and realizes, uh-oh, this describes me, where do they go for help? Right. So I think there are there can be, and I work with a lot of parents who, you know, when I assess their child for, let's say, ADHD or executive functioning challenge, when I'm done explaining what it is and why, why it's challenging and what to do about it, they often will say, oh, my gosh, that's me. Mm-hmm. How am I supposed to teach my child something that I am struggling with myself? So it does start with sort of educating yourself about the nature of your challenges and then some of the things that work for kids and teens also work for adults as well. Um, one of the things that unexpected, you know, kind of findings about um, time management and productivity, and I work with a lot of adults, right? I work with kids, but I also work with school kids. One of the things, and teachers and parents and professionals, one of the things that is so interesting that I think is coming to forefront now about um, with the movement around mindfulness and things like that is that actually happier, rested minds are more productive, and you're more focused. And so I think there's this intersection that's being uncovered in the research around rest um, and de-stressing, actually, as a way to improve your executive function. So for, that's kind of my first line of defense for parents. If you're finding it's hard to focus and follow through and you're feeling scattered and things like that, do a sort of gut check, like, well, am I stressed? Because stress is pervasive, and it will view of all of those great frontal lobe thinking skills. That makes so much sense. And of course, as you put that in the backdrop of the pandemic, of course, they're stressed, particularly if they're looking at an unknown economic future and so many other variables. It's a situation where they say, yeah, I got it. I'm stressed. I can't uh, I can't hold a thought hostage here. I have no concept of time management. But trying to get out of that stress loop 
I would assume is is quite difficult. But uh, but as we're wrapping up the hour, what I what I do realize uh, when I was on reading executive functioning disorder, at least gave me the tools to understand how the problem manifests and and what should be done of it, at least a- analytically, if not emotionally. And you've got some great tips for uh, for parents and uh, especially for school psychologists. If you go to thrivingschoolpsych.com, there's a there's a ton of stuff, and it's just a wealth of information. And uh, you're still walking upright and conjugating your verbs with a six-year-old. So congratulations and thanks for joining us. Thank you so much. Yes, and I'm actually a positive thing about the, as I'm enjoying some time with my kids and I'm learning about isosceles triangles all over again. I'm learning how to do division in a brand new way. I feel like Mr. Incredible in Incredibles 2, where it's like, why did they change math, right? But I'm enjoying some time with my kids, that connection time. And I really appreciate you having me on for this very important topic for parents to handle their own stress, to help their kids, and to advocate for their kids, and and really to kind of, as a nation, really think about ways that we can deliver more mental health and learning supports to kids, because they deserve it. They need it right now, in the pandemic now more than ever. So thank you so much for having me on in this really important topic. Well, my pleasure, and thanks for all the great tools and for spending an hour with us. Good luck, Rebecca. Thank you so much. All right, Rebecca Brandstetter, PhD, and like I say, executive functioning disorder. Yeah, I saw myself all over that time management. Of course, Dan, back in the WGN control room, knows all about my time management skills. I should shut up and say it's WGN Radio. Serving the great Midwest from Chicago, W.